This is the Woodland Hills Family Church Podcast. Our desire is to inspire you and your family to become fully devoted followers of Christ. Now enjoy today's message with Shay Robbins. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Woodland Hills Family Church. Uh, my name is Shay Robbins. I'm a part of our teaching team. I come in from time to time, as you can tell from the technical difficulties. Um, do we have a talented team running around here? I cannot get over. How does Matt Gum move his head like that? I feel like he's got a double jointed neck or something. Um, well, hey, excited to have you here for greater joy as we continue in our series. As a part of our service, we take an offering. Thank you for being joyful givers. And uh, Travis kind of updated us on the four ways to give. And I'm going to do the, do the same here. We've got offering boxes located in the back foyer. We've got the Church Center app. You can also give online at woodlandhills.org. And you can also text to 84321. And we'll actually know how relevant, hip, and cool you are based off of which method of giving you use. So no judgment, but... Uh, uh, we can learn a lot about you. Also wanted to tell you that next Sunday, December 5th, we're going to move our 10 a.m. Uh, overflow from the gathering place back to the chapel. We're filling back up in our 10 a.m. So know that uh, outdoors will continue to be an opportunity for you to hang out. The weather looks fantastic for the next 10 days. So we'll be excited to see you out there. Um, I am going to share today on boasting in Christ, and specifically, we're going to talk about the difference between self-righteousness and righteousness found in Christ. I want to give you a little Thanksgiving update before uh, I, we dive into our text. Um, I spent the week with the in-laws. We had all the in-laws come to Branson Moe, and we rented a VRBO, and we piled in there. Could have gone horribly, but it actually was just a wonderful week. We had an awesome time together. And then this weekend, um, during youth hunting season part two, I had two kids shoot a deer. So that was fun. Lulu and Knox both got a deer this weekend. And Knox shot his first buck as a nine-year-old. And you know in the Ozarks, the way you determine how big your buck is, is you count its points. Should we count it together? This, 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 actually self, this is actually a participation opportunity for you. Should we count them together? Thank you. Wow, good job. All right, let's count them. One, two. It's a two-pointer. It don't matter. When you're nine years old and you shoot yourself your first buck, it seems like a wall hanger. Um, but there's nowhere to go but up from here. So that, that was pretty fun. We're super excited about that. Um, and as I want to you know, just talk about this idea of self-righteousness. I want to share a story with you. A couple of weeks ago, um, you know, the, I had a little bit of work to do that I was procrastinating on. I've been known to procrastinate. We live on the east side of Branson over by Holiday Hills on a small farm off of T Highway. And we have a long uh, private gravel drive that goes back in the woods. When visitors come over, I tell them, drive down the road until you feel like you're going to get shot and then just keep going. And uh, you finally get to our house. It's just kind of this uh, quaint little drive, but it's a long gravel road and it's hilly. And so when we have 
torrential downpours, or the gully washer, as the Ozarkians call it, that gravel road gets rutted up and it becomes a nightmare. <laughs> and so uh, I'm constantly maintaining it, which is a little bit of work and I'm happy to do it. But I was kind of procrastinating. We had a good rain several weeks ago and the ruts were getting pretty bad. And my wife, like when she loads the kids up and takes them to school in our swagger wagon, it's like they're going on a safari, you know what I mean? They're like, (laughs) you know, and of course there's goldfish just flying everywhere. And before they get out at school, I feel like they get up and then they just stomp the goldfish into the carpet and then they get out and go to school. Um, And so anyway, my wife is nagging me. She's like, are you going to take care of the road? So I finally get out there and um, get her tractor, Old Blue, right, Dad? I got Old Blue out and I took the brush hog off and I backed up to um, our blade and our three-point hitch, you got to fight it just a little bit. And so I'm like going around it and trying to get the blade and it's super heavy and tedious and and I'm adjusting the right height on the three-point. I finally get it lined up. And I look down at the blade, and at the base of the blade is a rattlesnake coiled up. Yeah! It had been there the whole time. I was completely oblivious and unaware of the danger. And um, I tell you that story because when we talk about self-righteousness, it's something that, that can seep into our lives. It is a quiet, it is a subtle danger and, and if we're unaware, it can strike and hurt us. And so self-righteousness, it finds its way into some interesting places. It finds its way into good Christian homes. It finds its way into Bible teaching churches. And it finds its way into well-meaning communities. So you ask yourself, well, how does that happen? You know, those are some of the most wholesome places there are on this earth. And, and self-righteousness, it's bred through a number of things. So there's kind of like three overarching categories that I thought of. Number one is religion, a religion of do's and don'ts. The next one is social causes. Another one can be worldviews. And so these are, you know, overarching. But then when we get more granular, you've got things like perfectionism or rule following, behavior modification, and then finally the need to justify sin. And this is probably the most significant one on the entire list, the need to justify sin. I believe it it is built in mankind. When we sin and the Spirit convicts us, we know that it's wrong. There is this There is this desire that's woven into our nature that needs to justify that sin somehow. And self-righteousness, very just simply boiled down, is justifying that sin on our own. And and that's where we, we jump off into our text this morning. So Paul, we start in Philippians chapter 3, and he gives us a charge and then a warning. And his charge starts like this. He says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. So again, there's our theme. He, he's, he's reminding us, rejoice in the Lord no matter what. And then he says, it's no trouble for me to write these same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. In other words, he's warned the church about this befo- before. But I'm gonna, he says, I'm going to warn you again. 
And here's how he phrases it. And I, this is, we're going to look at the entire text in the NIV, but this specific passage, I pulled the NASB version because I like the, the language it uses. It says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, beware, beware, beware. And what had happened was, is that this growing young church in, in the city of Philippi, there was a group of Judaizers. And what Judaizers were is they were people who claimed to be Christians, but they were, they were forcing people to, to not only believe in Christ, but also to add, to, to tack on the 613 Old Testament Jewish laws, as well as circumcision. Circumcision was an Old Testament covenant promise that God gave to his chosen people that they might be identified by it. And these Judaizers were saying that Jesus isn't enough. You need to do X, Y, and Z additionally in order to be saved. They were false teachers and they were stirring up false doctrine that was drawing people off course. And here's what Paul says. He says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. This phrase, this uh, uh, of circumcision, he's using in this way, he says, we are the chosen people of God. See, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament was set up, it was 613 laws, it was meant to show God's chosen people, that you can't do it on your own. You can't be perfect. You can't be whole. You're sinners and you're broken and you have a desperate need of a savior. That's the Old Testament. Testament simply means covenant or promise. So when Jesus came, he established the New Testament or the new promise. And Jesus came that he might fulfill the old law and be the long-awaited Messiah and that that. Uh, he established a new covenant where they were made righteous simply by way of faith in the Messiah. And and so as the church, we understand this. We understand that, that we are chosen. And what that means is that we serve God by his spirit and we boast in Christ Jesus alone. And we no longer put any confidence in our flesh or in our inability to earn our way into heaven. Well, how does that make its way with that understanding? How would it make its way into well-meaning homes and churches and communities? Well, in this narrative, there's two groups of people. The Judaizers represent a group of people who are self-appointed. In other words, they took all of these rules and they added it onto the religion. They took a stance of elevation and power. They self-appointed themselves. And then with Paul, he says, but we are the true circumcision and, and we've come, become that because we are chosen through Christ. And so it's the difference between being self-appointed and being chosen. Now, what God really revealed to me as I was studying this text is that, that I can be guilty of making these subtle little self-appointment appointments to elevate myself. And when self-appointments go unchecked, they become self-righteousness. 
So here's what a self-appointed attitude looks like. It is entitled, proud, unwilling to listen, critical of others, self-promoting, self-serving, and self-affirming. Coming off of Thanksgiving, as you read through that list, you might see some family members' faces flash in your mind's eye, right? Entitled, you know, the 13-year-old, the teenagers, and, and then there's the proud, oh, my father-in-law, and then unwilling to listen, my mother-in-law won't listen to anything, and critical of others, I can't think of anybody who fits that category, and self-promoting, self-serving, self-affirming. But as we read through these, and if we're honest and take a self-reflective look at it, I got to be honest. These can be my attitudes. And so a healthy Christian lifestyle has got to ask self-reflective questions. And, And the question is this, is Lord, is this me? Is that me? I want to break down, uh, just some things that, that we ought to be aware of as we do self-reflection. And I want you to think through your home, your workplace, your presence online, your attitude with your spouse, um, and look for these things. Here's a couple warnings to be aware of. Number one is discontentment. What am I unhappy with? And, and to be honest with you, over the last couple of weeks, this has been an issue for me. I put a, I've spent a lot of emotional energy thinking about the things that I don't have. And I've been discontented with parts of my life. Here's another one that popped up. You're weighed down with the burden to always be right. Mm. So you think about the house over Thanksgiving. It's filled with all of these people, these loving family members who gather with different faith origins, different political backgrounds, different opinions about the coronavirus pandemic. And these little conversations are taking place at the table and in the kitchen and over on the the sofa. And you overhear it and you think... I need to get over there and tell them what's right. I need to educate these people. I have this burning desire to tell you what's true and what I think. And guess what that is? It's self-righteousness. And we can all fall into that. Here's another version. You're constantly telling yourself why you're right. I'm just going to put you on the spot. Raise your hand if you did that this week. (laughs) Okay, that's called self-justification. We're all there, right? We, you know, I talked about earlier, like we have this internal drive to justify our sin. We also have, uh, when we have the desire, that strong sense to always be right, in your head, you're going to have a conversation and you're going to convince yourself why you're right. In fact, you're going to have a uh, conversation with other people who aren't present in your brain and you're going to tell them why you're right too. Well, guess what that is? Self-righteousness. It's the the very definition of what we're talking about. And uh, let's see, do I have one more? One more, putting people down 
There's three kind of ways that we do this. We put people down in our thoughts. That's pretty convicting. We put people down when we're with other people. So when you're in a huddle over here with one or two people and you're telling them all the reasons why this person's wrong or foolish or a pain or selfishness or selfish. And then the other time is when you use your position. So that might be your role in your family or in your job or on your team or at your school. And you put, the, put other people down and it makes you feel empowered and important. And, and I got to be honest with you, as I read through this list, I think I'm guilty of all of them. Here's the other side of it. Here's what a chosen attitude looks like. It's humble, thankful, eager to listen, encouraging to others, content, joyful, and affirmed by the value of being adopted. Isn't that a great list? I read that list and I think to myself, that's the way that I want to live. That's the attitude that I want to carry myself about with. And I think it all hinges, all these things, all these emotions and feelings, they all hinge on being chosen and sitting in that. Oh, by the way, Every single one of you is chosen all the time. In Christ, you have been chosen and these attitudes are yours to live out. I, I was thinking about when I, um, when I first asked Ashley out, when she said yes, I felt all of these things. And then, uh, you know, about a month into her dating life, I asked her to be my girlfriend. She said yes again. Guess what? I felt all these things. When I got down on one knee and I asked her to marry me and she said yes third time. I felt all of these things. Well, you know why I felt them? It's because she chose me. And church, I want to remind you that, that you are not insignificant. You haven't been left behind. You're not ignored. You're not overlooked. God loves you and he is choosing you to be adopted into his family. Having been chosen, this is yours. I want to jump back in to verse four. It says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence... And so Paul, he's, he's, he's going to go back and he's going to say, hey, here's all the reasons why I would have reason to boast in my Judaism. And he goes off, he says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Here's my resume. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, he was a Pharisee. In other words, he was a purebred Jew who studied the scriptures, was elevated to the lofty position of Pharisee, was thought well of. It said, as for zeal for his faith, he was a persecutor of the church. 
was well known for it. And as for righteousness based on the law, he was found faultless. He was blameless. In other, in other words, people looked at him and they saw as close to perfection as could be. And he had earned this through blood, sweat and tears and, and had a lot to gain from it, frankly. But here's what he says. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, everything that Paul ever worked for, he had to give it up when he chose to follow Jesus. He left it all behind. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage or rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to speak to two groups of people. First, is those of us who struggle with self-righteousness and self-appointment working its way into our life. Uh, The correction here is quite simple. Number one, you are humble enough to admit that this is an issue with me. Number two, you confess it to God and others if necessary. And number three, you turn and you run the other way. It's very simple. And, and I find myself practicing it on a daily basis. I think that's how we need to go about it because it's so invasive in our lives. On the other hand, I want to speak to the individual that perhaps could care less about self-righteousness and have just completely embraced lawlessness. In a church this size and people watching online, there is plenty of people in here that have said, oh, heck with it. I'm going to do it my own way. I don't care anymore. And I want to share part of my story. Um, You know, I was raised in a great Christian home and came to faith as a little guy and then just did the classic prodigal son and ran away from my faith. I moved out to California and um, I ended up surrendering my heart like wholly and completely to the Lord. And for three months, I experienced a lot of freedom from shame and guilt, but I also uh, had some hard times. I was struggled with loneliness. I struggled with boredom. Um, a lot of like the like life and adventure, I didn't really know where to find it. And I'd made the decision that I was going to move to Branson on January 1st. And my friends were, you know, going out on, on New Year's Eve. And um, my, my whole reason for moving to L.A., I had, I had a corporate job, but my, my dream was to do sketch comedy and to live a celebrity lifestyle. That's really why I went out there. And along the way, we, we met some celebrities and started running around with them. And, and that night, on New Year's Eve night, it was kind of like the pinnacle of my experience out there in that uh, we'd become friends with, with a guy who was a member of, 
arguably the largest band in the world at the time. And we went to his house for New Year's Eve. And so we're down at the beach. We get picked up in a limo. We drive through Hollywood and up through Beverly Hills. And we pull up to this estate. And at the gate is a security guard. They check us in. They open the gate. We drive up this this winding um, drive up to a mansion. And we get out and there's all these beautiful people in here. And at one point I turned around and I was looking right at Macaulay Culkin. And I was like, <laughs> not really, that would have been so lame. Uh, and, and that night, after three months of walking with the Lord, I went off the deep end. And... Uh, Really, my intentions for going out there, like I was living my dream. But the following morning when I woke up, it was, it was probably one of the top three lowest moments I've ever had in my life. And, and that morning, I made the decision that I was going to leave Beverly Hills for Holiday Hills. Um, and while my life has been far from perfect, uh, since then I've never gone back. That was the, that was the morning where I traded it all in. And, and I want to speak to the, to the man or woman who has knowingly wandered from God. You're not too far gone. You've been chosen. I'm going to read this passage to you. Verse 10, it says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and, the part- and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. For those of you who didn't grow up in church or maybe didn't pay attention at all uh, or who are new, new to church or uh, you know, you're sitting in here and you read that phrase, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Like, what in the world does that mean? This sounds like crazy talk. But I want to explain it simply in this way. Is that, that we all know that when we do something wrong, it's sin. It just doesn't matter what religion you're from, what your upbringing was. The Holy Spirit is the convictor of the world. And, and we know, if we're honest with ourselves, that what we're doing is wrong and that there's a cost for it. And the reality is, in the, in the presence of a holy God, the cost for sin is an eternal punishment, is death. And God sent Jesus to live a perfect life, to be completely sinless, to but go ahead and die the death that you and I should have died. To pay the penalty for our sin. And for three days, he laid in the grave. And on the third day, he physically rose again, overcoming death in the grave so that all the world would know for the millennia to follow, 2,000 years later, we're all sitting here because he rose from the dead. 
to show that I am the son of God and that what I say is true. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the father but through me. And so if you and I are going to attain to the resurrection of the dead, it looks like this. Recognizing I am a sinner. I admit it. And I've been running from you, Lord. But in that confession of sin, I I am ready to die to my old way of life. What was gained to me, I now consider loss. I consider it but rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And so while Jesus was physically raised from the grave, you and I can be spiritually raised from from the dead and brought into new life. And I want to make it oh so clear, if that's you sitting out there today, that you, you're like, I don't have that. I don't have a relationship with Jesus. You can have it today. Today can be the day that changes the course of your life. And I just want to invite you, if that's you, at the end of the service, we've got a prayer team that waits down here, and we want to process that with you. I want to encourage you to be brave enough to take some time and to walk down here and to, and to let us walk through the process with you. I also know that there's people in here that know the Lord, that are living in rebellion, and their self-justification wheels have been spinning a million miles an hour. And I want you to know too, the Lord wants to have you back. He chooses you too. He wants to restore your humble heart. We'll finish with Paul's closing words. Actually, go back here real quick. So, in light of all that, live today like you've been resurrected from the dead. What would that be like? To be chosen, to be pulled out of the grave, to be alive again. Everything tastes better. Every relationship is sweeter. Every hug is more tender. The sunshine on your face is warmer. And you get to have that because you've been chosen. You get to have it today. Now, let's close with Paul's words. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken a hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let's stand to our feet. Father, we come to you today and we thank you for choosing us. I want to pray for those that have unfinished business with you, Lord, that they, that they would take care of that business today, whatever that would require, and that you could reintroduce them to a greater joy. Jesus, we celebrate you today and we are filled with thanksgiving. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.